Welcome to Spin It, where the worst of times can become the best of times. I'm your host, Stephanie Malik, an award-winning crisis management expert and business consulting strategist. Along with my team of experts at S. Malik Enterprises, I have worked with thousands of high-wealth individuals and businesses over the last 25 years to create customized approaches for crisis management and business consulting to ensure they take their careers, relationships, and companies to the next level. On Spin It, we pursue purpose and passion, aspiring to uncover the true story behind every guest's successes and failures, removing the mystique behind what it takes to be truly successful from those that have actually done it. I'm chatting with executives and entrepreneurs all over the globe to understand how they turned obstacles into opportunities to grow not only themselves, but their businesses. I want to impact and inspire you and as many people as possible, not by blurting out the same old motivational phrases, but with the truth and authenticity behind real success, along with the roadmaps and methodologies it takes to get there. Whether it was a scandal, a broken business model, or simply navigating the noise, we want you to learn from our mistakes. It's all in how you spin it. Today, I'll be talking with a great friend of mine, Scott McGregor. Scott is the founder and CEO of Something New LLC, one of the fastest growing talent strategy companies in the country. He is the author of the Standing O book trilogy, Standing O, Standing O Encore, and Standing O Salute. The proceeds of these books go to charity and the philanthropy doesn't stop there with his company's social mission called Something Good. I'm excited to chat with Scott about his personal mission and his secret sauce in mining and retaining top talent. Hey, Scott, thank you so much for joining. Welcome to the show. Stephanie, I could not be more excited. You know you're one of my favorite people. Oh, I love and adore that we're going to do this together. I know that we've talked about this for a while now, so I'm super, super excited. Me as well. I wanted to first talk to you about, you obviously know the show is about turning obstacles into opportunities. Have you ever had any significant obstacles that have turned out to be an opportunity or a blessing for you? They all have. I think that's the way I've always viewed things. It's not that I want any of these things to happen, but I know that I built my resiliency by going through a lot to the point where it's kind of like, okay, bring it on because I know I can handle it. So in a weird way, I don't really view those things as obstacles. They've all turned into calluses that I've built that have made me, especially as an entrepreneur, probably better suited to take the next body blow, which is always coming. So you think that resilience can be taught? You don't think it's innate? Absolutely. A hundred percent it can be taught. It's the repetition of going through tough stuff. So it's like working out, you know, the first time you do something like your, maybe your hands are like incredibly sore, but you build up those calluses and it's like, okay, now I can handle more. I can handle more. I can handle more. And incrementally, you know, you're in a totally different space and resiliency is the same way. I couldn't agree more. Talk to me about a personal and a professional, specifically an obstacle that you've gone through that's turned out to be okay or an opportunity? You know, professionally, I was in a spot where I was a chief revenue officer for a long period of time. So I had left a Fortune 500 company in Pitney Bowes 
and went to a five-person startup, which everybody thought I was insane. And we grew it to about 300 employees and we were pretty successful. And because I grew up very poor in an affluent town, I stuck with a job that I really didn't love. There were aspects of it that I loved, but there was a lot of things that left me wanting more. But I stayed in it forever. Uh, As a matter of fact, I had the business plan for something new. This is embarrassing, but it's true. I had it for 10 years. So of the 17 years I was there, for 10 of them, I had the business plan for my current business. That turned out to be a great opportunity. I learned a ton. I had tremendous interaction with other talent strategy companies, and I saw everything that they were doing that I wanted to fix. So it was like being in a lab. I I wish I had done it a little bit earlier, but that turned out pretty well. That's incredible. I can't wait to talk about that a little bit later because we are so aligned and have so much synergy on something new. And as you're gaining all of this information and you're thinking, oh, I would do that better. I would fix this or I would tweak that or, oh, gosh, this would be great if we pivoted this. And all you're doing is really building your mental muscle and your business plan to create the absolute best product and service, which you absolutely have done. So I'm excited to talk about that later. What about personally? On a personal side, I grew up in a really extremely dysfunctional family. My dad, mental illness, my sister, bipolar, anorexic, my younger sister, pregnant, you know, freshman year in high school, all all kinds of stuff that at the time, you know, was challenging, but it definitely built my resiliency. And it, it also, it gave me tremendous drive and focus because I didn't want to live that way. And I said, there's no way I'm going to live in this type of environment, whether it was financially, and it wasn't because I wanted material things. It was, you know, I I distinctly remember like birthdays and Christmas feeling really like stressed and guilty that I knew my parents were going to get me something, but they really couldn't afford to. And I just thought, what a crappy way to grow up. Like, I don't want to continue that. So that was a huge motivator. I was like psychotically motivated, you know, from the get go. And I, I attribute that to just kind of the way I grew up. And Scott, were they frustrated with you that you, cause you know, we talked about this on our initial call a while back, my family, I was always the black sheep because I just saw things a little differently. And I think what they felt from me was that they weren't good enough. And that never was what I was feeling. I was always feeling that I didn't want to live in the chaos. I didn't want them to feel like they had to perform or give those gifts or work a little harder. I wanted to contribute. And so what ended up happening for my mom, again, like we've talked about who had severe mental illness, was I was always the black sheep and I was always kind of the one that was pushed aside or pushed away because I never really fit in. How were they towards you as you were psychotically motivated, as you said? (laughs) I was definitely the black sheep. Like they didn't get it and they still don't get it. And that's fine. Like it doesn't, honestly, it doesn't bother me a bit. It's just not how they are. They're not in the business world. They don't understand that 
you know, the motivation I have now is not to put another zero in my bank account. It's that the success that I can have in business allows me to have impact in people's lives that at one point I could only dream of. And now you kind of see it come to fruition. So, you know, they don't really understand that I was the first one in my family and even extended family to graduate from from college. And one of my scholarships, I, I went to school on a full scholarship, but one of my scholarships when I was a senior, uh, which was a small little tiny scholarship, it was $1,500, something got messed up. And I distinctly remember my parents saying, this is my senior year. I'm about to become the first uh, one in my family to graduate from college. And they said, well, I, I guess you can't go to school for your senior year. And this was for 1500 bucks. And I, I said, uh, I'm driving to the school right now to the admissions office, and I'm going to figure this out. So I drove up there and, you know, worked it out. But literally, I was probably not going to, you know, be able to attend my senior year because of $1,500. But they, they didn't understand why that was important to me. Right, right. And so how's your relationship with them now? Um, I have a great relationship with my mom. My siblings uh, love them to death, but we're we're just very different. And and I'm okay with that. We're just really different. We have totally different priorities. And I think it's hard when you are very different for people to understand why is he putting these books out? Why is he doing this? Why is he starting businesses? Um, I think it's hard for them to understand that. Yeah. Well, I can absolutely relate and understand that. I know some of the very best advice that I got when I was, as they said, loving them from afar, because being close to them or being next to them, it wasn't so much that it affected me so deeply. I think it affected them more. I think it became more negative for them. And so I just started really just sending almost like just encouraging messages and just saying, hey, thinking of you and and really not spending a bunch of one-on-one -on -one time together because I, I felt like it was just destructive for not only me, but for them. Right, right. I surround myself with just amazing people that want more than I, I want in terms of what they want to accomplish and the impact they want to make on the world. And that's what lights me up. And anyone who doesn't kind of fit into that, I just choose not to develop relationships with, with those people. And it doesn't matter whether they're past acquaintances or family, or it doesn't, it doesn't matter. I just, I can't live my life and have negativity in it that's unnecessary. That's amazing. And and I hope that as people start to listen more and more and more to this podcast, I think they're going to see like a common thread that, you know, you surround yourself by giants, meaning giant in their thinking and their feelings and their impact. You become giant, surround yourself by toxicity and negativity, and that's permeates into your life. And that's just not acceptable for what you're hoping to become. Totally agree. So are we, can we talk about the books? Sure. Okay, great. So Standing O is such an incredible series. And I have to tell you, Scott, when you reached out to me and asked me to be a part of this, it was such an emotional thing for me because I was going through so many things at that exact time. And, and I was so scattered. And I remember getting the email and being completely overwhelmed 
with gratitude and with an overall sense of calm that came over me of he just gets me and he knows that no matter how depleted I am, I just want to act in service. And that is exactly what you did. So Standing O and the two follow-up books, Encore and Salute, is a collection of essays written by prominent and successful people where each of them share a story about someone that inspired them in the past. What gave you this idea? Lack of money. Uh, So uh, when I started my business, probably the primary reason why I started something new was I wanted a mechanism to give back. It was incredibly important to me because I knew that being an entrepreneur was going to be tough. But if I woke up every day knowing that if I did a good job, I was going to be able to impact more people's lives, then that was going to be very, very motivating for me. The problem was I made a decision very early on because I'm allergic to debt. I did not want to take any outside capital and I was going to bootstrap my business. So with that, I'm like, okay, I want to give back and I want to give back in a really substantial way, but I can't write giant checks because I just am pouring all of my money back into the business. So I thought, what are my assets? My greatest assets are my friends like you, whether they're amazing entrepreneurs or whether they're best-selling authors or Olympians or pro athletes. I have cultivated relationships with just a tremendous amount of amazing people. And it's a really eclectic kind of group. So I thought, why don't I... Uh, have them write a chapter in a book about gratitude for a life lesson learned, and then I'll give all of the proceeds to charity. So I'll pick a charity that's not really well known. We can shine a big spotlight on them and then give all the proceeds to, to that charity. So we did that with Standing O, Coach Dick Vermeil, who you know won a Super Bowl with the Rams. He wrote the foreword. Tiki Barber, who's an all-time great for the New York Giants, wrote the cover quote. Uh, And then we had 52 just like ridiculous rock stars, write Chapters. So it worked. And I'm like, wow, that was pretty cool. I think I have another 50 some odd friends. So I wasn't about to reinvent the wheel. So we did it again with Standing O Encore, gave all the proceeds to the Look for the Good Project. And then I have an affinity for the military. Both of my boys served in the military and have a ton of friends uh, with military backgrounds, especially special operations. So I decided to do a specialty book of life lessons learned, but just military. So Navy SEALs and Army generals and you name it, uh, that was standing a salute. We gave all the proceeds to the Special Operations Warrior Foundation. And then the book that you're going to be in, which comes out in October, is Standing O Tribute. And we're beyond excited about that. And all the proceeds for that is going to go to the Blankets of Hope. Incredible. Okay, so let's get a little technical. So I know that you said primarily the authors are friends. Do you just call them? Do you email them? How do you decide? Because I know your network is a hell of a lot more vast than 150 people. How do you decide who these authors are going to be? And how do you ask? It's, It's very random. It's people that inspire me. And sometimes they're 
in the art world. Sometimes they're celebrity chefs that I happen to know, or sometimes they're pro athletes or whatever. It doesn't really matter. I just am kind of fascinated by anybody who does something at a high level. It doesn't matter what they do, whether they wrote a book, run a business, or score a goal. Like to me, it's that's pretty cool. So I literally just pick up the phone and say, would you write a chapter of gratitude and memorialize somebody that taught you something? And, you know, because these are people that I have personal relationships with, I think I've had four or five people say, no, I, I can't do it because of timing. Uh, they just had too much on their plate. But we've now have 200 people in this kind of army that we call Standing O Nation. So that's a pretty good track record. So people are pretty enthusiastic about it. That's amazing. Tell me how you pick the charities. What has to happen for you to choose these charities? And and I, I, I was going to ask you, do they change annually? But you already answered that question. So talk to me about how you choose. So there's just so many great... I've been involved in volunteering forever. I was a house manager at the Ronald McDonald House when I was right out of college and helped run the Ronald McDonald House in New Haven, Connecticut. And uh, it was just an incredible experience. So I've always loved to give back. We, we, by design, pick charities that are not that well known because I, I think, you know, there's wonderful. Susan G. Coleman is a phenomenal nonprofit they don't necessarily need the publicity and the money that we can give them as much as, you know, some of the other nonprofits that we pick. So we definitely pick smaller organizations that can use the collective social media influence of the authors. So just to give you an example, Standing O Tribute, I think the collective social media following of the authors in Standing O Tribute is 10 million. So, you know, we're hoping that that spotlight really resonates with people and all of a sudden people may maybe have never heard of Blankets of Hope and then it's on their radar. Most of the organizations that I've picked to date have been ones that I'm personally involved in. So they're kind of near and dear to my heart. Whenever you give to these charities and you and you know you present them with this money, do you? And I know you said that you're you're involved in most of them. Do they show you or do they share with you how the money was used that you have given to them from these books? They don't because I never, you know, I want them to do whatever they feel is in their best interest. The other thing, uh, w- which is the downside is the money that we get. So, you know, you sell a book on Amazon for $14.99. We get, I think, like $4 and something for each book. And of course, we pass that along to nonprofits. So you can do the math pretty quickly. You got to sell an awful lot of books for that money to really amount to a, a, a large, large check. So we're always hoping that one of these books really takes off and, uh, but it's not easy to sell a ton of books. So I think the spotlight is more significant than the uh, than the financial piece that we're able to give them. Well, 10 million as far as collective followers, that is massive. So that's going to be so exciting. So when you're reading these essays and they come into you, are there any that you're just like, wow, what was this person even thinking? 
they touch me tremendously. Like I'm always amazed. So we, you know, I didn't know what I was doing for the first book. I literally had no clue. Our publisher actually said something. They were, we were having a conversation one day and they said something about an anthology. And I said, what's an anthology? And they said, that's what you're doing. The book, like a collaboration like that, that's called an anthology. So that's how dumb I am. I didn't even know what I was doing. So one of the things that we did early on that I think worked really well, and you probably saw this in the process of writing your chapter, is we don't give any direction other than write something about someone or a group of people that have impacted your life and just tell us what you learned. So people have taken it in lots of different directions. One of my favorite chapters ever in our first book uh, so Jesse Itzler's personal trainer is Mark Brown. Uh, so Mark played for the New York Jets, and he's a great guy and a fantastic friend of mine. And his chapter was called Dear Football. So he chose to write his chapter about a sport, not really a person. And the reason why he did that, he grew up in Patterson, New Jersey, and, you know, rough upbringing and Football is what really got him a scholarship to Auburn and then obviously was good enough to play in the NFL for the New York Jets. So he wrote his as like a letter to football. So I love the fact that people just take it in all kinds of different directions. Yeah, you for sure gave zero direction. Yeah, I said, none, Scott, help. None. And you're like, you're right. fine. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> I was like, I'm not even sure what that means. They're like, see you later. <laughs> that's so, um, that's amazing as far as the integrity and the authenticity of, of what you're actually trying to promote. Have you gotten any essays that you just were like, I'm not going to publish that? Never. Nope. When you read these, is there any common thread between all of the authors? Is there a common thread? Well, they're all writing about gratitude and they're all memorializing a person. A lot of it is about people who help them overcome adversity. Um, so that's probably a common thread. Most of it has to do with their earlier years. I'd say that's another common thread. There are definitely people that have written phenomenal chapters about, you know, their professional life or life much later on. But most people are going back to pretty early days. You know, those are kind of your formative years where those mentors or coaches or teachers just play a huge role in who you become. Wow. So whenever you get these books, Scott, so that they're published and they're out and you have them in your hand, and you look at them, what are you hoping that the reader takes away from the book? Like what, what exactly, if you, if one, two, three things, it doesn't really matter when they open it and they finish it, or maybe they piecemeal it and kind of go through it a little bit at a time or look for their favorite person or the ones that they know. What are you hoping that they take away from this? It's really that you can live a life of gratitude you know, it's a very, very, so the 200 collective authors, it's a super eclectic mix, but it's all about gratitude. So you can live a life of gratitude. It doesn't matter who you are. And I want people to just incorporate that into, into their daily life is look at things 
from an attitude of gratitude rather than like, woe is me, because I think everybody uh, without exception, you know, are very, very positive people who really have a, an incredibly positive outlook on life, even though many of them have overcome incredible odds to get whether they were an Olympian or whatever they've accomplished, they've overcome tremendous odds to get there. And one thing I've always realized in my life is that no matter what setback I've encountered, there is always a line that is 20 miles long of people that would take my place on my absolute worst, most horrendous day. And that's always the case. It will always be the case. So, so much truth. And that that's the thing that I try really hard to like share gingerly, as gingerly as possible, is how many people would just love to be on the absolute most heinous experience that you've experienced? How many people would switch places with you in a second? Nanosecond. Yeah. Yeah. Heartbeat. Yeah. Very true. So I want to talk about gratitude. And and the reason why I want to do this is because I've recently been met with gratitude means so many different things to so many different people, Stephanie. Tell us what your version of gratitude is. And so I'm starting to ask our guests. A lot of times people talk about gratitude being an, an ego inflator. Um, a lot of times people talk about gratitude as just being thankful and blessed. Whatever it happens to be, what is your version of gratitude? I think gratitude is just as simple as it's just being thankful, but it's being thankful despite circumstances. So it's, I guess it's all, without sounding cliche, it's always seeing the glass as half full rather than half empty. It's it's never uh, succumbing to the negativity that's always going to be around us. You know, I, I remember in the beginning of COVID, I posted something just saying, just remember, this is a moment in time. And, you know, we're closing in on the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And that was a moment in time, too. It doesn't take away from the fact that it was horrific. But these are all just moments in time. And we will get through them. It's all just how you look at them. And if you look at it as the worst thing that could ever happen, it's easy to get stuck there rather than, okay, this is a moment in time. It's going to make me stronger. It's I'm going to figure out a way to make this as positive as possible. It's just all how you think about it. What's one thing our listeners can do, just one thing to start to change that mindset into more of a grateful, gracious, thankful mindset? What's one thing that they can do? As soon as you start thinking about something negative, force yourself to think of a potential positive piece of that circumstance. So we all have negative thoughts every day about a number of different things. But if you train yourself to say, wait a second, time out. Okay, I'm going to accept that this is not the greatest thing in the world, but what is a potential positive outcome of this? That's kind of how I saw COVID is, okay, this is going to stretch me as an entrepreneur this is going to be challenging. I'm going to have to maybe think about my business a little bit differently. Those are all positive challenges. Like that's, 
it's good to be able to uh, have the opportunity to do that. And that's not discounting the toll that COVID took on people's lives and their businesses. It's just a mindset. Absolutely. And, and I'm glad that you brought that up because for me being so introverted and me loving being home, my negative thoughts, my negative, besides having to pivot the business, besides having to be in front of, you know, a thousand clients a year, besides that, my negative impact was watching my family who are all extroverts crave that, that connection and those people and get stir crazy being at home. That was my negative, just really seeing them be sad and be down and not being able to connect. So I didn't have that necessarily because I'm introverted and I'm okay with being at home and being with just a very small amount of people. But to watch what that did to their, you know, I have an 11 year old, what that did to him and just the social development part of, of growing and being a young one, that's so hard, so incredibly hard. Yeah, I think even with kids, though, you know, there's been periods in our country's history where kids have gone through tremendous adversity. And instead of worrying about how it's going to scar them, it's like there is a positive aspect of it. It is building. So every challenge that our kids go through, you should think, boy, they just got stronger. They just got more resilient because there's always going to be a bus that's going to round the corner and hit you always in business and life. It's just the way it works. And if you're shocked and surprised, you're going to get steamrolled every time. But building up that resiliency and, and seeing it as a gift, it's like, OK, I, I just got stronger. That's cool. Now I'm ready for a bigger bus. <laughs> exactly. For, for a way bigger bus. It seems to come around every corner. One last question before we transition into something new. What does a bad day look like for you? I don't have a lot of bad days. I have days where I just don't have the energy that I normally bring to my life. You're going to wake up some days and you're just not going to feel the same passion and motivation. And that's just the ebbs and flows of, of life. If I'm not furthering relationships and building relationships, like that's not a great day. Like I look, that's, that's probably what I like to do the most, even though I don't know if I'm a complete introvert, but I'm not an extrovert, but I love, love, love building real relationships. Make an unforgettable impression the moment you walk in the room with Executive Presence Elevated. This program is an exclusive and intensive online program designed specifically for you and led by me, Stephanie Malik. After 25 years as a business transformation and crisis specialist, I've learned just how integral Executive Presence is to gaining you the influence, prestige, and recognition you deserve and desire. Whether you're a mid-level manager looking to advance to the next level or an entrepreneur looking to inspire confidence in your investors, this program will transform your belief in what is possible. Find out more by going to stephaniemalik.com forward slash elevated. 
And I think that it's the initial meetings that are really hard for me. You know when someone clicks. I mean, you and I were so bummed that we only had 15 minutes in our very first call. I could have literally talked to you that day for 10 hours and and never paused in, in thoughtful and purposeful things to talk about. And that was one of the biggest things that drew me to you. You know, does it happen in every relationship? No, not really. But I want to find those impactful and inspiring relationships because that's what drives me. I'm the same way. I love it. I absolutely love it. And the bigger and more eclectic my network is of real relationships, the more I can give to other people. So I love the fact that somebody may present a challenge that they're having in their personal life or their business. And it's like, I know I've got somebody um, that can help you. That is an awesome feeling. The most ignited feeling of being an intentional connector of really knowing it's just, it's just such a puzzle, Scott. It just connects and you're like, oh my gosh. And I, and you know that other person so well that you know that they'll be they'll be held with such intention and such great care that it's a fabulous feeling to be an intentional connector. Let's talk about something new. As a company, something new prides itself on giving man a fish, but also teaching him how to fish. Something new recruiting finds you talent, but something new labs teaches companies hardcore and time-tested strategies on talent acquisition. This is like everything else, okay? So incredibly near and dear to my heart. So I have something that you don't know. I'm ready. So every company that I've created, um, I had Malico before. I've been a part of 11 global startups. But in my own firms, we've had a 1.5% turnover. 1.5%. Phenomenal. What do you attribute it to? Not looking at the resume or just, you know, looking at it really quickly and then throwing it out. It took me a lot of time to develop, to trust myself. It took me a lot of time to, Scott, remember monster.com? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Sure. So monster was a client, okay? And they had these these uh, workforce optimization tools, which is a whole other conversation because we actually developed co-technology for it. But they would give you a set of interview questions based on who, what type of people you were interviewing, marketing, engineering, accounting, and what level that they were. And I remember being in an office and looking at the questions and being like, who cares? I would never ask this question. And then I would go into the interview and I'd be like a robot. Like I'd be like, uh, do you have any further questions for me? And in my head, I'm thinking they're supposed to close me right now. There, all of these crazy assumptions that I had. And when I finally got comfortable enough to just look at the person in their eyes and ask them relevant questions and ask them about what lit them up, what made them apply, why they felt like they were the best person for this. When I dropped Stanford, Yale, Harvard, and and all the people were dying to come work at a consulting firm, and I actually truly hired people that could reach their biggest potential and their biggest goal and created an environment around their perks they cared about, not a standard cookie cutter perks, everything, everything changed. What do you do? What do you teach? So I'm a firm believer that companies have no freaking clue what they're doing when it comes to their people strategy. I mean, there are exceptions to the rule, but they are really, really few and far between. So I think it's actually getting worse, not getting better. I think a part of that is technology. People get super, super enamored with their technology and they don't realize that 
what will make or break their company is their people more than anything. And people just aren't intentional about it. They don't think about it. Uh, I'll give you just a typical day in the life. Like I talk to CEOs all day, every day, and typically I ask them three questions. I would say, what's your biggest expense? 100% of the time they give me the same answer, labor. Labor is people. So, okay, so people are your biggest expense. And then every company wants to get to another level, whether they want an IPO, whether they want another round of funding, whether they want to hit a milestone event, whatever it is, everybody wants to get to a next level. So the question is, what do you think you're going to need to do to get to that next level? Not all the time, but most of the time, the answer that they give me is, something centered around people. The third question I ask is, how often do you and your executive leadership team sit down and talk about your talent strategy? And the answer is rarely, if ever. That is such a massive disconnect. I think people think it's HR's job. It's not HR's job. It's all of our jobs as leaders. If you're a leader, you're in the people business. And if you're really good at it, then you're going to be a great leader. Great leaders really get talent. They understand how to acquire talent. They understand how to onboard talent. And they know how to keep talent like you did. You know, that turnover ratio is ridiculous. So that's what I'm passionate about. I'm passionate about helping businesses succeed by being more intentional about their talent strategy and really thinking through all the things, it's complex. It's really hard. And and it's time consuming. It's it's not like it's not a check the box. It's not tick, tick, tick. You actually have to engage. You have to actually look at them and go, if they're going to stay, I have to develop them. How do I develop them? What does that look like? And sometimes people aren't willing to take that perspective. They just don't invest. We have I would say that 90% of the people that are involved in the vetting process, remember the vetting process, hiring somebody is the most expensive thing you're going to do. 90% of those people are wildly unqualified to vet somebody. And it would be like walking up to a random stranger, telling them about some issue that you're having with your health and then having them diagnose and prescribe you a treatment plan. But that's what we do in corporate America all day, every day, which is absurd. Absurd and, quite frankly, from my standpoint, dangerous. I was speaking to a um, a senior, I want to make sure I get the title right, a senior executive recruiter. She was 26 years old. She shared with me later because she actually went to school with my oldest daughter. She was 26 years old. And we got to talking on an airplane before COVID. And I said, what is your first entry into a resume? So what is the very first thing you look at? And she said, swear, she said, um, we do a categorized uh, word search. And I said, wait, what do you mean? And she's like, well, like, for example, like, say that it was for SAP. She's like, we put in SAP. Say it was a director level, we put in director. And she's like, then we get you know, down to a finite, you know, amount. And I go, finite? If the pro- if the service is SAP, architect or consultant, you're going to get that in every resume. And she's like, yeah, 
it really doesn't prove very successful at most times. But that's the first round of vetting, as you call it. And it's it's just, I don't know. There's, I don't really think there's any strategy around serving talent at all. There isn't. So seven years in, I'm consistently horrified and shocked to a degree because I think it's just so crazy that companies don't spend more time on this because it will literally make or break them. And I think people are, unfortunately, they don't look at companies like Apple and say, Apple is successful because of their people strategy. People look at Apple and say, Apple is successful because they design these elegantly simplistic devices that universally are accepted and marketed really well. Who, who came up with all that stuff? People came up with all that stuff. Apple is a great company because of their people. But I think sometimes people don't equate that with the reason for their success. Where do you find these amazing people that you find for other companies? Uh, so we have a very unique way of pretty much doing everything. So we you know, I intentionally, the, the reason, and this is the reason why I think a lot of entrepreneurs uh, get into business, is to solve a problem that they had. So as a chief revenue officer, I was going to blow my brains out if I had to deal with another recruiter. I just thought this is the most dysfunctional industry I've ever seen in my life. Like these people are horrendous at what they do. And I knew that I could build a different mousetrap because I knew the problems I was having and I knew how to solve them. Not because I was smart, they weren't rocket science. I just knew what needed to be done and sourcing candidates. So if you uh, put truth serum in most internal talent acquisition teams or external agencies and said, how do you find talent? The answer is they do a swan dive into LinkedIn and just start flailing around trying to find warm bodies. Cut and paste, 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 and exactly. then constant messaging. Yes, thought, absolutely. Well, that's that's really not a great way to find great talent. Why don't we leverage an influencer network to do that? So we created a massive, massive influencer network of macro and micro influencers that we leverage uh, to find the best talent out there. Um, so it's, again, not rocket science, but it takes a long, long time to build that up. And fortunately, I already had a massive network before I even started the business. So I was able to tap into that and then be very intentional in building it. And that's how we find most of our, our talent. And that's something that people really can't compete with because you just can't magically say, <laughs> create an influencer network. It, that's not how it works. Talk to me about culture and about fit when you're going out and looking for people and obviously knowing that it really truly depends on the level and and what hire they are. Um, are they an individual contributor? Are they a manager? Um, what the strategy looks like. But talk to me about, do you look for a culture fit? Do you look for a soft skill fit? Or do you look for a hard skill fit first? I mean, we're looking for it all because it, you have to have it all. You can't have, and I think that's one of the mistakes that people make is they're like, oh, that'd be a great culture fit, but they don't really have the skill set or they have the skill set, but they won't be a culture fit. But so they they wind up 
making exceptions where they really shouldn't. So you have to have it all. And the only way to do that is you have to spend a lot of time with the client understanding what perfect looks like. And then you have to spend a lot of time with the candidate to find out what perfect looks like for them. So part of our process is just super, super time intensive. We spend a ton of time. Candidates have to go through two rounds with us before they would even potentially get to a client. So we've been keeping this statistic for seven years. Only about three or 4% of the people we vet ever get presented to our client. And that may not sound like much to somebody who doesn't understand how it really works, but most recruiters send almost everybody. Exactly. Um, and it burns out It burns out the hiring manager. The hiring manager is exhausted. They're frustrated. They're ticked off. They've gone through all of these people. They're taking away from, you know, revenue responsibility or revenue accountability to interview these people. And none of these people are a, a good personal match. They're not a good skill match and they're not a good cultural match. And then they're really frustrated and then basically start ghosting the recruiter. The recruiter continues to work on this hamster wheel over and over again, spitting out the exact same candidates because nobody's taken the time in the middle to thoughtfully put these two together. You know, I know from my past experience working with recruiters, if you gave them a job description and a salary range, they'd be off to the races. And I would always think like, don't you want to talk to me a little bit more because there's so much more insight that I can give you. So we created something called an ASAP. It stands for Accurate Search Accelerated Placement. And it's going way beyond a job description to figure out what perfect looks like for that company. So the company has to invest about an hour of their time, way beyond kind of the job description, all the other stuff they give us to help us really understand that. And then we have a similar process with a candidate to figure out what their perfect looks like. And only when the puzzle pieces actually fit, do we have something. And so 97, 98% of the time, the puzzle pieces don't fit. And we don't try to manipulate them to no. fit. Because then somebody ultimately will end up unhappy. It doesn't work for anybody. But I think people, because people are very short-term oriented, they're like, well, that's how I get paid. So I'm going to submit Billy or Susie, even though I know they're not the right person. But when you think about it from a fiduciary responsibility, having a good job affects your finances, your mental health, your physical health, your relationships, like it touches every aspect of your life. When you have a crappy job, it does the same thing, but in a negative way. And for businesses, when they have the wrong person in the job, it can really be devastating. So taking it seriously and not taking shortcuts is one of the keys to success. But I think so often it's like, but I got to get paid I'd rather do it right and do all the heavy lifting than just collect a, a check. And, and also too, Scott, and keep the relationship. Like it's not about throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. It's about truly acting in service. It's about creating a strategy and, and having two very happy, fulfilled people for what they were both looking for. So it's not about a paycheck. It's about impactful 
um, learning and, and growing your knowledge and also too growing your talent pool. You will always be thought of as that person who actually came in and created the strategy and, and didn't just throw people at them like a recruiter did. What's the number one mistake that you see hiring managers make? Uh, they don't know what they're looking for. And if you don't know what you're looking for, you're probably, you're, you're never going to find the right thing. It's uh, so they've never done the hard work of sitting down saying, you know, what am I really looking for? So for instance, I'm a big believer. There's three things uh, typically that I look for in people, which is work ethic, discipline, and resiliency. Go on Indeed and go look at as many job descriptions as you can. And tell me if you find one that has work ethic, discipline, or resiliency in the job description. So people aren't even looking for the things that will actually dictate whether that person will succeed or fail. They're looking at surface level things, years of experience, the school they went to, or whether they went to school, all nice-to-haves, or in some cases, completely meaningless, but people are pretty lazy. So they just look at these surface-level things, or they say, like, I wouldn't really know how to ascertain somebody's level of resiliency or work ethic or discipline. And it all goes back to, you know, do you know how to do behavioral interviewing? And most people have no idea how to do behavioral interviewing. So they don't even know the questions to ask to, to uncover somebody's degree of those things that will dictate whether they succeed or fail. In, in meeting with these candidates and meeting with these people that are looking for jobs, what's the biggest reason why people leave companies? I mean, it's typically the culture. It's typically the direct person that they're working for. People, I, I do believe that saying that people don't really leave companies, they leave their manager. And I see that time and time again. They just don't feel valued. They don't feel like they're being invested in. Um, they don't feel like they're being heard. That's probably the common denominator. Very rarely are we seeing people that are leaving. The primary reason is comp. It's really not. It's in there, but it's not. It's not in the top one or two. One last question before we go into the talent council. If somebody's looking for a job right now and they have great experience, what is the number one skill, both both either interpersonal or or hard skill that they could learn to be a standout right now online on these on these big virtual Zoom conversations? What can they do to stand out? Networking, but networking not in like a lot of people have a negative connotation when it comes to networking. They think it's like walking into a big room and shaking people's hand and passing over their business card and saying what they do. It's building relationships. If you have great relationships, you'll probably never be worried about finding your next job and being digitally relevant. Um, not being afraid to use a platform like LinkedIn, which can be a game changer. It's free. I had uh, somebody actually making fun of me the other day about my activity on LinkedIn. 
like they're all over LinkedIn and why do you do that? And I'm like, well, yeah, in seven years, my company has never, we've never made a cold call and we've never sent a mass email out yet. We've grown every year and we've been pretty successful and we've done it using a platform that's free. So I guess that's why I do it. And they said? <laughs> yeah, you know, the, pe- people don't like to be wrong, so no comment. Um, you know, I, th- I think it's LinkedIn to me is just a way, it's an effective way to build relationships. That's how I use it and see it. The content that I'm putting out is intended to educate. It's intended to hopefully inspire. It's intended to help build relationships and nurture existing relationships. That's what it's all about. Life to me is all about relationships. The relationships you have are the biggest thing that can change your life. So one of one of the things that that I model and I know that you believe in as well is showing up and adding an intrinsic amount of value. So before asking, you really show up in that person's life and go, what do you need? Where are the voids? Where are the holes? How can I help? And I know I've see I see this with you. I see you offer it. I see you really, you really don't throw things out there that you don't mean. You really go, hey, how can I help? When you're giving people advice on LinkedIn, because I know for me, I get probably 100 to 200 DMs literally a day. And, and most people will, as you well know, connect and then ask and then connect and then ask. My model is I give, 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 give one more time. And then if there is an ask that's a direct and intentional ask, I will ask, but not before showing up and adding value five times. What's your model? Same. Uh, you know, Gary Vee wrote the book years and years ago that I think is kind of the gold standard. And it's just to give, but it, it can't be in a manipulative way. It has to be like, I love to help people and I love to figure out how to help people. That's fun for me. And I don't try to get to the end of the game. So I think what happens is people meet somebody who's really accomplished like you. And they say, how can I monetize my relationship with Stephanie in the next 30, 60 or 90 days? When I met you, I'm like, whoa, she is amazing. I never even think about how can I monetize this? I'm just like, here's a magnetic person. Here's somebody who is totally my speed and I want to get to know her what invariably happens is I've wound up in business in good spots. And I stand in that spot and I'm like, how the hell did I get here? And I'm like, oh, you know what? It was Heather Monahan who introduced me to Stephanie and Stephanie introduced me to this part. It's like this crazy circuitous path that got me there. But if my mentality in the beginning was to try to figure out how the story ends, you never wind up there. So I I just don't, I don't even think that way. I just think, are you a cool, inspiring, interesting person? Cool. I want to get to know you. I want to build a relationship. I have no idea how it's going to play out. But historically, it's always played out well. And I think oftentimes... 
some of my best relationships are people that will absolutely never, ever directly do business with me. And it doesn't matter to me at all. But I, I think you you nailed it, Scott, so much for me. As you're talking, I'm thinking about things. I, I never have an end game in mind. So if I have you, if, if now if somebody asks me for something, so if I get if I get a DM or if I get something where I can immediately say yes and I can immediately not put someone out, but I can actually immediately show up for them, I will absolutely do it. And so I think when there isn't an end game and you really just genuinely have a desire to get to know that person and show up and help and add value in so many different ways, I think things just naturally come up because it is so real. I agree. Yeah, 100%. So we're running out of time, but I do want to touch on the Talent Champion Council. You are the founder of the Talent Championship Council, which is the leading private community for innovative talent strategies. How does your community go about finding high-level talent to become members of this community? So people really come to us. So I started it. Uh, my wife and I were, you know, we're in the midst of COVID. And this is last late August, early September of last year. And we decided to drive to Charleston, South Carolina, which is an absolutely phenomenal place that we had never been. I would not recommend going in August uh, because it was about a thousand degrees out and insanely humid. And 400% humidity. Yeah, but we loved it. (laughs) So anyway, on the ride back, which is a, you know, a 14 hour ride or whatever from Connecticut, we were talking about my business, my primary business, something new. And I was saying how much I love the business because we're able to give back and we're able to really, really impact people's lives. But I said, you know, like, how can I do even more? Like, how can I give back more and how can I impact more people? And I realized that all of the companies that we work with that struggle when it comes to their talent strategy are made up of hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of people that don't really understand how to do it. So I thought, why don't we build a community to help people, leaders of all kinds, not HR. I mean, we have tons of HR people in the Talent Champions Council, but we have tons of CEOs. We have tons of chief revenue officers, chief marketing officers, you name it, that understand that talent will make or break them. And then we teach them how to do talent acquisition, onboarding, retention, diversity, equity, inclusion, like you name it, we teach them how to do it better. And we do it through the lens of bringing in, I believe, people that do it better than corporate America. So we definitely bring in icons from corporate America. You mentioned Claude Silver before. We've had Claude Silver do a masterclass. We've had Kara Golden do a masterclass. We've had some amazing corporate icons do those things. But I believe that from my experience, I've seen professional sports and I've seen the military actually do a better job with their talent strategy than companies do. So because I have a large network in pro sports and in the military, we will call on some of my friends who, you know, the first masterclass we did was Coach Dick Vermeil. Uh, who won a Super Bowl, the Rams, we had him come on and he talked about team building and culture. Then we had a Navy SEAL, Mike Sorelli, come on and talk about the war for talent. So 
we bring different disciplines. And I think people listen a little bit differently when it's a Navy SEAL or it's a Super Bowl winning coach. You know, we've had Brandy Chastain on. We've had uh, just some amazing, amazing people all talking about talent strategy, but through the lens of kind of sometimes pro sports in the military. And so for TCC, if somebody is really interested and they see the field differently, they have so much to offer. And maybe they do come from corporate or like you said, maybe they are from sports. A lot of our clients are athletes. How do they get involved? What what do you want more of for TCC to even show up with more value? So ideally, we would like every CEO and I would say every leader in the world to have a people over everything mindset. So people over everything is kind of our mantra. That's that's our marching orders. And if every leader had a people over everything mindset, we would live in a totally different world. E- signing up is easy. You go to talentchampionscouncil.com. It's $240 a year. And that's for probably 30 some odd master classes, uh, weekly champions chats, and tons and tons and tons of great content. But the ability to interact with legends, and literally legends, uh, that come on and you're asking your question directly to Coach Vermeil or Brandy Chastain or whoever uh, is doing our master class, it, it's a pretty cool opportunity. And that was the difference for me. So, you know, I get asked a million times to speak all over the world. What's the subject? Like, like, how are we going to show up and, and, and hear it differently? How are we going to say it differently? Every single masterclass that you guys have, it's so real. It's, it's not scripted. It's not like some big sales push. It's not, it's just so impactful and real. If you can log on for 15 minutes and actually just hear some of the questions and hear the responses back... $250 a year is, I mean, a masterclass, every one of those people that you have on are worth $5,000 for a masterclass for that day. So you've done an incredibly um, amazing job. Literally, literally, Scott, I'm kind of a, a difficult person when it comes to um, like seeing who those speakers are and being like, ugh, ugh. Every one of them, I'm like, how can I rearrange my calendar? Okay, what can I, how can I move this? They're so good and they're so different. Like you said, eclectic, they all have so many different voices and messages to say. And I think you have done just a fabulous job at curating this special spot. Thank you. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you just our next three, you talk about eclectic. We have Shantae Lowe, four-time Olympian, would have been a five-time Olympian, but she was going through chemotherapy and got COVID right before qualifying for the Tokyo Games. Uh, She's one of my absolute people that I admire the most on the planet. Uh, We'll follow her up with Merrill Hodge. Uh, If you're younger, you know him as a guy on ESPN. If you're a little bit older, you know him as a bruising running back for the Bears and the Steelers. And then we have Brian Scudamore, who is the CEO of O2 Brands. And people may not know O2 Brands, but they probably know 1-800-GOT-JUNK, which is uh, the business that he started, got on Oprah. He's just, uh, he's hysterically funny, uh, wrote an incredible book called WTF, Willing to Fail, and uh, is just an amazing guy. So those are our next three masterclass guests. and, And it's pretty tough to get conversations with those types of people, but that's the exposure that we give to uh, to the folks that are in our council. 
Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you actually shared that. Um, we'll link all of that in your episode. So I am, I'm excited for people to jump on and actually hear what those amazing people have to say. A couple more questions before I let you go. In four years of college, you never, ever missed a class. Is that real? <laughs> it's the truth. I, I still say it's a world record. I never missed a class. I I went to school on a on a full ride scholarship and I felt like, why am I here? Like I'm here to learn and I'm here to go to class and it didn't matter how many beers I drank the night before. Like I never missed one class in four years of school. That is unbelievable, especially because you didn't take it easy. And in I college. had a lot of fun. I, I had was a lot say, of fun. Exactly. Too much. Why did Aunt Betty think you went to Harvard? Uh, because I went to the University of Hartford. So great, uh, great question. So I was sitting in my aunt's living room, who's one of the, I call her the great, one of the great eight, which are uh, the eight people that I kind of memorialized in the first book, Standing O. And she was talking to a friend of hers and she said, boy, you know, we're so proud of Scotty. You know, he went to Harvard. And I sat there and I went, what did she say? I said, what did you say? She said, well, you know, we're just so proud of you for going to Harvard. And I said, uh, Aunt Betty, I went to Hartford. And she was like, caught herself and she was like, oh, we're still proud of you. So uh, <laughs> she was proud of me, despite the fact that it was uh, not even close to uh, to Harvard. What's your favorite craft beer? Great Lakes Brewing Company, uh, Edmund Fitzgerald Porter is phenomenal. So if anyone out there wants to be my best friend, you, you know how to get me. It's phenomenal. And it's fall, so porters and stouts are like, that's my go-to now. I love it. What is your most favorite season of The Bachelorette? Most favorite season of The Bachelorette, which it's shameful, uh, but I do think it's like the greatest TV show ever. My wife and I watch it religiously because it's such a train wreck and these people are just out of their minds. I don't know that I have a favorite. Last question. Why are you so fond of the Vikings? My dad was a New York Giants fan. I had to be, I've kind of always been a contrarian. So I'm like, well, I can't root for the Giants and there's no way I was rooting for the Jets and the Patriots stunk, so nobody rooted for the Patriots at that time. So this is 1970s. I'm like, the purple people eaters, that sounds pretty cool to a young kid. So You're I had, in. I'm in. <laughs> I have been a massive Minnesota Vikings fan, and I'm just looking for one Super Bowl. Like, I'm not greedy. I just need one. Just give me one. This Scott, could be the year. This is this has been so, so fun. I am so excited to have you on, and I am so, so excited that we got to talk, cover so many different areas. It was an honor as usual. Stephanie, I can't thank you enough. You know, I love you to death. I love the podcast. I think you're absolutely killing it. You're killing it in, like, all aspects of your life, and I'm super, super, super grateful uh, for your chapter in Standing Out Tribute. So just thank you for being a friend, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Spin It. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to hit the subscribe button to be notified when a new episode is released. The best way to support the show is to leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast app. And if you want to hear more from me, hop over to Instagram and follow me at Stephanie Malik. 
That's Stephanie with a Y, S-T-E-P-H-Y-N-I-E, Malik, M-A-L-I-K, or visit my website at stephaniemalik.com.